0: Welcome to the Nauticast podcast, the one true chapter-by-chapter podcast going through A Song of Ice and Fire. I'm one of your hosts, Emmett. And I'm your other host, Manu. Damn right. And welcome to the 178th episode of the Nauticast titled The Grey Wedding, an analysis of a Storm of Swords, Sansa 3, in which it's the happiest day of Sansa Stark's life for about five seconds. Which, you know, that's, that's more than Sansa gets on a typical day. I guess that's an improvement it, on nothing.
1: In 2022, it might be an improvement on what most people get in a day. So, hey, might as well savor it.
0: It's five seconds. Sansa Stark should be so lucky. But yeah, welcome back to the Nauticast. It's been a long time since we covered A Song of Ice and Fire here on the Nauticast. I've been covering Star Wars and Lord of the Rings episodes for a while. And as I will mention uh, at length towards the end of this episode, I'm going to be continuing with those on a somewhat different basis. But the main thing that we are here to do today is welcome the new co-host of the Nauticast podcast. Everyone roll your drums and throw your roses and do whatever it is you do. Welcome, Manu. Thank
1: you so much for being here. Hi, thank you, Emmett. And hello, everyone. I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. You may remember me from such Nauticast episodes as Brand 4 from A Game of Thrones (laughs) and Brand 7 from A Clash of Kings, the third Ion Inc. And if you also remember that episode, I basically made the same exact joke then. (laughs) You may also recall, recall that I was doing a Metal Gear Solid podcast, Podcast Sans Frontiers, and I actually came on to the Nauticast to talk to it, uh, talk about it with Emmett back then. Um, also, since then, I've started a Lord of the Rings podcast. It's called My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast, and our Patreon just went live as of day of the recording. It's been going great, and we're setting up a great community to discuss our Lord of the Rings episodes, the Rings of Power, and I'm sure there'll be some hot D talk in there as well. Um, I've been doing that with my wonderful co-host Emily, and we have just been kind of going all unhinged on the films and the books that inspired them. And I want to uh, thank you, Emmett, the man on the other side of this mic, because your initial Lord of the Rings episodes a year and a half ago is a big reason that I wanted to start this journey on my own. And we even had the pleasure of having you on for the Balrog wizard fight. Um, I know it's one of the scenes that means a lot to you. Um, It's one of the most metal scenes in all of Tolkien's work. So it was really great to dive into that episode with you. But I don't mean to bury the lead here. I am stepping into some giant shoes that were once filled by Jeff. The Fish is not only an incredible podcaster, a Song of Ice and Fire analyst, and George Martin publishing guru, but he's also just an incredibly fierce friend, one I've been lucky to have known for over a decade. He means a lot to me, and more importantly, I know he means a lot to this community, and I can never hope to replace him. What I can promise is that I will approach A Song of Ice and Fire with the same passion and with the same commitment to this group of people that he did. We love Jeff, and I wouldn't be a part of this fandom without him. As for Emmett, well, I got nothing nice to say about him. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds I about right. That's I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Uh, Emmett and his other half, you may know of whom I speak, are just some of my absolute best friends in the world. They've welcomed me into their home, and Emmett has now welcomed me onto this podcast and given me a chance to be welcomed into all of your homes and all of your years. So I know this podcast inspires a lot of loyalty, and many many of you listening are incredibly dear friends to me as well. Um, I look forward to matching wits with Emmett, his seven brain cells, to my three. And I think we got some really good, great stuff in
0: store for you. And at the least, you'll get at least 300% more Simpsons references. At least. I hope so. That's, that's the main reason. No, I'm kidding. But no, I mean, you, you said it so perfectly about Jeff. And I miss Jeff. I miss Jeff every day. I think he made the right decision to step away. I think it's already helping him out. I think he's got other things he needs to focus on and that's totally fine. And nothing lasts forever, you know, not even a song of ice and fire, although it seems like it's lasted forever due to its (laughs) unfinished status, but even that does not last forever. And, you know, you got to be able to embrace great new things when they come along. And I can't think of, of any better example of that than getting to do this podcast with you, sir. So I'm just, uh, I'm so grateful to you and I have such love for Jeff and everyone listening and I'm just really excited because I just really, really have a great time talking about this story. You may have gathered that over the past several years that we've been doing this. So uh, typically we kick off Cast episodes with questions from our audience, and we will be resuming that. But I wanted to start this episode off with a question for my new co-host. What are you looking forward most to covering here? Because we still got a lot of story to go, even without the Winds of Winter. So what are you looking forward to most? Oh boy, that is both the easiest and hardest question
1: imaginable.
0: <laughs> Easy in the sense
1: that the timing of my onboarding coincides with all the shit truly beginning to hit the Aswath fan right down to this very chapter we're going to discuss. Probably the most iconic moments in all of the story are found in this book, from red vipers and weddings to Lannisters in baths and privies, battles and elections, drama at Queen's Crown, and the book ending with a dead woman holding a king's crown. Is this spiel too cute by half? (laughs) I'm really trying to make a good impression here. (laughs) Uh, I think Jeff and I were the last two Jamie Lannister fanboys out there, and against all odds, we were doing it for free. So I have to admit being able to cover the chapters in which his character truly comes into focus is going to be a thrill for me. Um, Jamie V, I will sound like I am on an acid trip. I'm just going to be bouncing off the walls. And then there's also Sam, the last good boy in Westeros, and the sheer emotionality of his chapters may just overwhelm me. And who can forget dear Rat Boy? I, I mean Theon, <laughs> whose chapters in Dance and Winds of Winter may prove to be some of George's best. Which gets me to the next thing. I'm honestly super excited to discuss Feet's Feast and Dance specifically, objectively, the two best A Song of Ice and Fire books. The richness of the prose and profundity of themes can't be overexplored, and it's not something I've had an opportunity to opine on much. Because of the Throne show, I was able to find forums for most of my a Game of Thrones through Storm of Swords analysis and discussion of the HBO series. But because Feast Dance was only partially adapted and that in a limited way, I feel like I have a lot of unused fuel for the hot take fire but ultimately the number one thing I am looking forward to is covering the stuff with you, Mr. poor Quentin himself. When talking about the shoulders of giants on which our work is built, yours is the first that comes to mind. You have a tremendous mind for analysis and critique. And though I believe you are definitively correct. Most of the time you are correct (laughs) in a way that engenders more conversation, more analysis, more digging. You push me to dig harder, which is the highest compliment I could pay anyone's work. We both have very similar interests in film and art broadly, and we both have some similar vectors of analysis, which I hope will bear fruit for the audience. I'd read yours and Jeff's work extensively before Not A Cast started, so often I'd come into the latest episode kind of knowing where you and Jeff were going to go. But it was in those kind of impromptu conversations you'd have, caused by the little frictions in your approaches, that I think I found the most fascinating stuff, and I think, and I hope, we'll be able to recreate that phenomenon, too. So in the end, I guess my answer is Jamie Lannister and Emmett Booth. I guess that's the only two time those or the only time those two names would make sense to a single
0: answer to a question. So. <laughs> Actually, I've been Jamie Lannister all along. So <laughs> I reveal that, pull off the Mission Impossible mask. No, it's. I mean, what I love about this series more than anything is that it, it does feel inexhaustible, and that might just be because we're sick human beings and and can can dig endlessly into the story. But I've dug deep into other stories before for for fun or for school or for whatever. And with other stories, I do, I feel like I reach a stopping point where obviously there's things I haven't thought about that other people could bring out. But I feel like I'm, I've, I'm done with this story. I've done everything I can with. And despite talking and writing about A Song of Ice and Fire a lot for many years now, I I feel like I genuinely feel like I've scraped the surface of the story. Which is just a a, a testament to George R. R. Martin, but also just a testament to the really creative minds that have been writing and talking about the story for a long time, and how, as you say, so much of the conversation inspires further conversation and further thought. I've experienced that too, and I really love that. So I can't I can't wait to keep that going. As always, spoiler warning for the NADA cast. All published books, the five novels, the three Duncan Egg novellas, histories, interviews, the Winds of Winter sample chapters, as well as sometimes Game of Thrones the TV show. Anything and everything. And with that, we're going to launch into the synopsis for the chapter we're covering this week, A Storm of Swords, Sansa 3. Last time we checked in on Sansa, she was looking forward to her new dress. Now it's ready for her, so she has to get ready for it. After her bath, Cersei's own maid shows up to cut her nails and hair. And then Cersei herself shows up with the seamstress to watch Sansa get fitted and offer her some jewelry. Does this seem like a lot of attention to be paying to one prisoner's dress? Well, it's a really, really nice one. So much so that Sansa actually finds herself looking forward to her wedding to Willis Tyrell. She swirls in the mirror as Cersei comments on how tragic it is to give her to the gargoyle. Really burying the lead there, Your Grace. Sansa thinks she means Willis, but how could that be? No one knows but her best friends the Tyrells, and Dantos, none of whom would betray her. It's only when they bring out the cloak that Sansa understands what's going on. It's a Stark cloak, with a direwolf embroidered upon it. Her father's sigil. Sansa knows what that means, It's a maiden's cloak, and so this is her wedding day. Cersei finally lays down the law. Your reward of the crown, your hand is ours to dispose of, and we are disposing it upon my least favorite brother. Sansa realizes thereafter her claim to Winterfell, and gives credit to Dantos the still totally innocent. He saw this coming. Sansa begs to be allowed to marry Willis, and Cersei says that, yeah, she too would hate marrying Tyrion, but Sansa doesn't have a choice. She can fight or give in. Either way, she's ending the day as Lady Lannister. Sansa tries to run for it, but Cersei's maid catches her and hands her over to the Kingsguard. Marin Trant looks ready to kill her on the spot. Osmond Kettleblack tells her to be brave and do as she's told. Both escort her to the Sept. Sansa steadying herself by recalling that Tyrion helped her. Before when Joffrey unleashed the King's Guard on her. Even so, she starts disassociating, only to snap back to attention when Joffrey shows up, to make everyone else look human by comparison. He declares that he's her father today, because that's what Joffrey needed, another fucked up psychosexual layer to him. Sansa defies him, and Joffrey naturally pouts, threatening to marry her to the pig boy instead. Or worse, to Ilan Payne the man who killed her father. Sansa begs not to be married to Payne, but Tyrion, as he walks in, naturally assumes they're talking about him. He gets Joffrey to leave and turns to his new bride. Tyrion tells Sansa she looks nice. She thanks him for the compliment. Ten thousand years of awkwardness later, Tyrion apologizes for what's happening here, saying that he would have warned her rather than You know, dragging her screaming for the altar, but Big Daddy Tywin sent him to his room. Tyrion offers to get Sansa out of this, assuming she'll marry Lancel instead, that is. Because he's handsome, you see. Sansa, naturally, doesn't want either of them. She wants the promise of Willis back, the sons named for the father and brothers she has lost. But then she remembers the words of totally innocent brave guy Dantos. Tyrell or Lannister, it makes no matter. It's not me they want, only my claim. She accepts her fate. Tyrion says that at least he's better than Joffrey. Sansa acknowledges that he has cleared the lowest bar in human history, and off they trot to do their duty. All the court is here to watch the happy couple get hitched, with the notable exception of Sansa's best friends, the Tyrells. Sansa cries her way through the ceremony and everyone does a great job ignoring the terrified child bride well done everyone joffrey thinking that sansa hasn't had a hard enough time yet decides to fondle her along the way someone take the shot already as for tyrion he's not tall enough to get the bride cloak around sansa's shoulders and she is in no mood to help him out by kneeling joffrey shows off his pragmatic goal-oriented leadership by having dantos serve as a living step stool for tyrion what a charming wedding Good luck to these crazy kids. At the wedding feast, the Tyrells finally make an appearance. Marjorie's the only one who even bothers to make eye contact with Sansa. What a class act these assholes are. Tyrion, meanwhile, takes refuge in the cause of, and solution to, all of life's problems. Alcohol. Sansa can't pay attention to anything but her growing terror of the bedding ceremony to follow the feast. It always seemed fun to her when she was younger... But it's a nightmare for her now. Still, she plays the part, asking Tyrion if they should lead the dance. Tyrion channels Joe Pesci and Goodfellas, asking if he's a clown here to amuse you. And she backs off. Joffrey and Marjorie dance instead. In her dreams, everyone at her wedding was smiling. In reality, her husband is miserable. The other party guests join the dancing, most prominently, Cersei, the belle of the ball. Sansa hates her for a while, before Garland Tyrell turns up to ask for a dance, assuming Tyrion agrees. Tyrion says, yes, fuck yes, anything to be alone for a while. Sansa is grateful just to be able to enjoy the night a little, saying she understands now why they call Garland the Gallant. Garland says he got his nickname from his big brother Willis, trying to save little bro from all the other g-words he could have been associated with, like greensick, or galling, or gargoyle. Sansa laughs, and manages to forget for a minute how much everything sucks forever. Garland says his wife Leonette is worried about Sansa. They could all see her crying at the altar. Garland says that while he knows Sansa has a crush on his littlest bro Loris, that was never going to work out, for reasons, and Tyrion will make a better husband than Sansa might think. The dance separates them, and Sansa winds up with a series of partners sadly culminating with Joffrey, who is still in won't-someone-please-kill-me mode. He says that Sansa shouldn't worry. Tyrion might be ugly, but Sansa can still welcome handsome, perfect King Joffrey into her bed. Sansa, who somehow still has the capacity to be shocked by this dude, reminds Joffrey that he's about to get married himself. Joffrey, though, says that a king can have other women. Robert did, after all, as did Aegon IV, although Joffrey can't get that number right. Fake fan, didn't read the books. Anyway, Joffrey says Tyrion will deliver Sansa to him when commanded, or Joffrey will have his uncle's head. Can, can we go back to Garland? That was fun. I like that mm-hmm. part. Unfortunately, Joffrey isn't going anywhere until a couple more weddings from now, and as soon as the dance is done, he starts the call for the bedding. Tyrion interrupts the wolf howls to announce that the bedding has been cancelled. Joffrey insists otherwise, but then Tyrion brings this happy affair to a screeching halt, by threatening to castrate the king, and leave him only a wooden cock to pleasure Marjorie with. An image Mushroom would be proud of. Tywin steps into the resulting silence to announce that, yeah, they can skip the betting, and Tyrion must not have meant it. Through gritted teeth, Tyrion confirms that it was a bad joke. Making fun of his own cock to get out of trouble, a tried and tested move. He then abruptly decides the betting is back on, and pulls Sansa from the room. When they reach their marriage bed, Tyrion decides that he's not quite full of booze yet, just 90% of the way there. Sansa objects to drinking at first and then realizes this is going to be easier if she's drunk too. Sansa tosses back her wine and offers to get undressed, but first Tyrion has to reminisce about her first w- but first Tyrion has to reminisce about his first wife, Taisha. Remember her audience at home? Keep her in mind. Sansa, polite as ever, Says she forgot Tyrion has been married before. Tyrion confirms that she never knew. Then he asks how old she is, cursing when he learns she's not yet 13, and then getting all pissy about her courtesies. Didn't think this night could keep getting worse, but here we are. Sansa manages to get undressed. Tyrion looks at her, calls her a child, and confesses that he wants her anyway. He says that he knows he's not the husband she dreamt of, but he's loyal Generous, clever, and even kind from time to time. Besides, in the dark, she can imagine him as anyone, even as Loras. Sansa realizes that Tyrion is terrified. Not that this means they're best friends now. She just pities him, is all. She stays silent. Tyrion takes one last drink, and husband and wife slide into bed. Tyrion touches her breast, then pulls back asking her to open her eyes and look at him. He says that despite his father's orders, they can and should wait to consummate the match until she knows him, trusts him, maybe even wants him. Sansa looks at Tyrion, trying to find the beauty in him, and can't. Even his smile scares her. This is how the chapter ends. It took all the courage that was in her to look in those mismatched eyes and say, And if I never want you to, my lord, His mouth jerked as if she had slapped him. Never? Her neck was so tight she could scarcely nod. Why? he said. That is why the gods made whores, for imps like me. He closed his short blunt fingers into a fist and climbed down off the bed. And that is A Storm of Swords, Sansa 3. So uh, I'm going to turn it over to my co-host, Manu. What do you make of this, uh, this light, frothy... Escape of a chapter. First of all, it's
1: great to hear a not-a-cast recap. It's been it's been a little while, so has <laughs> um, those always give me a little thrill. Um, I've read these books so many times, often from the very start of a Game of Thrones, but a couple times mm-hmm. I just start with Storms Prologue or even just Feast <coughs> Dance. This is the first time I ever checked back in with A Song of Ice and Fire with Sansa Three, A Storm of Swords, and boy, did it give me whiplash. Good whiplash, but whiplash all the same. Like Sansa, the rug is pulled out from under the audience early in this chapter, having to grapple with the imminent nuptials to Tyrion when Sansa had just learned to hope and won some friends over to her side. Or so she thought, sadly enough. Being with her through every every step of this emotional swing as she suffers through her worst moments as a piece in the Game of Thrones is just gut-wrenching.
0: How about you? Yeah, man, what a chapter to come back to. I mean, it's a song of ice and fire, they're all gut-punches but few chapters are more clearly designed as an emotional gauntlet for the reader. George sticks your heart in a vice right from the start, and every plot beat is him tightening it a little more. Having just learned to love again, Sansa loses it all. Again. And doesn't even have the dignity of being left alone, as she briefly was after her father died. Here, her misery is on display. A public object of consumption, as her body and name, are made Lannister property. Above all, this chapter is about the complexity of perspective. You can imagine it unfolding very differently with Tyrion as the POV. Throughout the chapter, we are denied any safe harbor, any detachment. All you can do is feel. Now we left off last time with Dracarys. A Storm of Swords' Danny Three, when she unleashed fire on Astapor. And as I said then, that felt like the end of Act 1 of A Storm of Swords. Now we're in Act 2, which has a very clear ending, The Red Wedding. From here through The Red Wedding, there are 25 chapters, 14 of which, a majority, are set in the Riverlands, building up to The Red Wedding. And even in the chapters set in other places with other characters, point to that bloody climax in their own ways. Sam's next chapter is basically a dress rehearsal for the Red Wedding, with the explosion of violence at Craster's table despite the protections of Guest right. Tyrion learns that his father has melted down Ned's sword, and then he meets Oberyn Martell, out to get vengeance for the last round of Lannister Ultraviolence. Davos' only chapter in Act 2 ends with Stannis burning a leech, symbolizing Rob. Act 2 ends with a wedding, and starts with 1-2, Sansa's wedding to Tyrion. The two are connected, because as Tyrion realized in his last chapter, Tywin's plan for Tyrion to father the next Lord of Winterfell on Sansa only makes sense if Rob dies without an heir. This is part of what makes the Red Wedding so powerful. It's not just a standalone shock. It's tied into everything else, like a black hole sucking us in.
1: Yeah, no, the way you describe Act 2 is almost like a puzzle that's being assembled. From this chapter, you can take mm-hmm. Guest right, or from this chapter, you can take uh, History of Lannister Violence. And even this chapter is basically George kind of laying down the rules of a Westerosi wedding under the eyes of the Seven. So it's really just remarkable that Act 2 starts and ends with weddings, but how differently the shocks are of them are pulled off. Even on reread, Sansa 3 blindsides you, even though you know you know the Tyrion-Sansa wedding is coming. But once you hit that stretch of Arya and cat chapters leading into the Red Wedding, it's just one dreadful long march to doom. I think this chapter sets a good tone for the act as a whole, brief moments of hope before the fall. Sansa's hope for Willis quickly turns into dread for Tyrion. Arya's hope the Hound will face justice for Micah and Lannister crimes turns into the Hound's liberation. And her own captivity. Rob's plan to retake the North and hope that Walder Frey may forgive quickly turns into that. You 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 know what I speak.
0: Yeah, that's a great point. That for for Rob, his plan to oh we're gonna fight the Ironborn. Maybe we have a chance because they're going home because Balin died. Like that's his equivalent to what Sansa feels at the start of this chapter. That 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 brief moment of happiness and possibility she has before the door slams shut. And really all of Sansa's chapters in A Storm of Swords play around with information. As she is dropped into multiple conspiracies, she can only half understand. Right away in this chapter, there's the dramatic irony of the reader knowing that Sansa has been betrothed to Tyrion, not Willis Terrell. Then again, we don't know right away that we're about to watch that wedding happen, because Tywin didn't set a date. We only gradually realize as we read and mostly we realize because everyone's making such a big deal over it. Isn't that fucking sad? Everyone's being nice to Sansa, and that just sets off alarm bells at this point. On reread, the irony is baked into every image, every choice of words. The opening scene of this chapter is suffused with gorgeous descriptions, playing on all of your senses. The ivory and silver of her gown, the scent of her lemony perfume, the texture of Sansa's shoes as she slips them on. George is overwhelming us with details in part to ground us in the scene, so we feel trapped along with Sansa when the bomb drops.
1: Oddly enough, this tactic makes me think back to the last time I was on with you and Jeff to discuss Brand 7 at the end of The Clash of Kings. In the same way, he starts that chapter with a sensory overload through Summer's eyes before pulling us back into the darkness of the Winterfell crypts with Brand the boy. In both these instances, we are seeing symbols of the Stark identity, be it Sansa's cloak or Winterfell itself, being ripped away from the children of the household and removed as a shield of protection. There's a certain irony to Sansa hoping to make Willis hoping to make Willis forget Winterfell and think only of her, given how much of this chapter is about forgetting Sansa and thinking of only her claim to Winterfell.
0: It's so sad to read her thinking about Oh, I have to have these tactics, I have to know how to get Willis to love me, and she's not going to be able to employ any of that because none of her decisions matter to the people running her life. And on Reread, all these details are also here to set up this world of feminine fantasy that is about to collapse inward on Sansa. It hurts all the more because she had stopped believing in all this stuff, the flowers and fragrances from the songs. She believed in that, and then her beautiful prince had her father's head cut off in front of her. But the Tyrells made Sansa love again, made her believe again, and it's heartbreaking to read about her laughing as she spins in the mirror, liking the look of herself for the first time in a long while. And now this worldview isn't about childhood naivete, as it was in the first book, it's about entering adolescence. Sansa has been preparing to enter onto the public stage as a young woman, rather than a girl. You can see that in how she describes her clothes. It was a woman's gown, not a little girl's. There was no doubt of that. If you're entering the public stage, you need to be done up all prim
1: and proper, which is literally what's happening here. She's being put in costume for her next performance. It's not just a wedding, but a debutante ball. A coming out to the world as Sansa Stark of Winterfell, the White Cloak saying it all. As Ser Dantos told us last time, the Sansa in that phrase is irrelevant, only Stark Uh of Winterfell matters to the players in King's Landing. And this could also be a preview of how Littlefinger plans to announce Sansa to the world, either betrothed to Harry the heir, or whatever
0: else he may actually be scheming at. Everyone Sansa is paired with along the way reveals how her story is changing and how her character is changing. She's no longer dreaming of Loris, the fantasy of her youth that we know was never going to be interested in her at all. Instead, she's dreaming she can win over Willis. So instead of feeling like she's settling, she feels like she's matured, that she has more of a realistic sense of how to do what it takes to make herself happy. She knows that this is about performance, and she is ready to play the role of woman. That's what this scene is all about, right? Initiation. There's a ritualistic quality to this, almost spiritual. The special clothes, she's being dabbed with the perfume like a holy oil. Sansa is entering a crucible and is getting ready to change. What she doesn't realize, until she's reminded, is that she still has no power over her life at all. This is a change she's being forced through. Her clothes aren't hers. Her friends aren't hers her hand is not hers to give away. This is not spiritual ascendance. It's human sacrifice. And she is specifically being sacrificed by Cersei, who looms over Sansa like she has before as a particularly gendered nightmare. Cersei must welcome Sansa into womanhood in Catalan's place, but does so as her enemy, with no love involved, only control. Cersei hates what was done to her as a woman. But she could never fully reject the patriarchy because it's the source of power. And she really, really, really loves power. A lot. So she passes the misery right on to Sansa. Locking her in the cage, Cersei knows all too well. She even says that she understands Sansa's reluctance. In your place, I'd tear my hair out. But that doesn't matter. I had to suffer, and so do you. This really is how violent systems are perpetrated,
1: aren't they? instead of, or perpetuated rather, instead of actively fighting against the levers of power, Cersei wants to seize those powers for herself. Clothing and marriage are two ways in which patriarchal societies confine and discipline women, and Cersei, a victim of those confinements, is more than willing to become a perpetrator of them too. We can draw parallels to Sansa wanting to refuse in this chapter to Cersei herself doing the same when Tywin broaches her remarrying in the previous Tyrion chapter as well. She's paying her oppression forward, essentially.
0: And there's the, the, the horrible intimacy of it, where like, like there's that particularly brutal detail of Cersei insisting that Sansa wear the moonstones Joffrey gave her, pretty much literalizing the idea that wealth and beauty come together to cover up violence. It's the antithesis of the gender solidarity Sansa felt from the Tyrells. But they, too, were only playing a part. While the most blunt, direct violence Sansa has faced has come from men, she's learning that this doesn't necessarily mean she can trust other women to help her, because they're looking after themselves, so they don't get hurt. Maybe no one will help. Maybe she's alone. As you've
1: discussed on the pod before, George loves to play quote-unquote fair with his audience, and this is perhaps one of the smaller instances of it, though no less effective. The events of this chapter are known to us. We know they're coming. We knew the minute Tywin sets the match. That Martin can still surprise us with it or lay down the conditions where it is a surprise speaks to the quality of the writing and how deeply he puts us into Sansa's headspace. I think the chapter works specifically because of those first few paragraphs where we do get to experience Sansa's excitement and then confusion. It makes the swing that much more impactful.
0: Yeah, absolutely agreed. And only when Cersei mentions the gargoyle does the first-time reader go, oh shit, because there's no way Cersei lets that slip unless the wedding is right now, today. Sansa still gets a last few seconds of ignorance, though, and George uses that narrow window to twist the knife one last time for the reader who knows more than Sansa does. She thinks to herself that no one knows about her secret betrothal to Willis, Oh, except Dantos, but he doesn't count. Not only does he count, he's the one who betrayed her. It's one more reminder that court life is all about wearing masks. That's politics for you. Look at Varus, the ultimate player, crying crocodile tears and hiding the truth under layers of bullshit. Sansa thinks Dantos doesn't count because he doesn't seem like a player. The sad, ridiculous drunk who almost got himself killed? who can barely get through a sentence without puking, whose day job is Joffrey's clown, he can't do anything that matters. But Sansa has to learn that the pawns can move themselves sometimes, or they can be moved by players you can't see. She can't rely on archetypes to guide her. She has to think in terms of people's interests. Even when she realizes Dantos told the truth about her claim, she still doesn't make the connection that he's the one who lets slip the secret. Dantos is a spy, and Sansa knows he's a spy, but she doesn't think he has interest in turning on her. Yeah, it's one of those things that on reread, you can just pinpoint exactly
1: how information was transferred and how and when Littlefinger and then subsequently the Lannisters learned of the Tyrell plot. I was actually rereading, I think it was Daenerys 3 in A Storm of Swords, and when, you know, uh, Krasnus was extolling the virtues of the Unsullied, one of the things he was talking about is even if they stand guard in your room or in your councils, they will never listen or betray your secrets like that. And that kind of stood out to me considering how, you know, the people that we just assume are kind of the background or not even there really because they don't hold any significant power or positions or titles. Um, but they still have ears and they can betray you and uh, Sansa has built this relationship and I'm sure this is part of Littlefinger's plan. This is why Ser Dantos has been going to her for over a year so Sansa doesn't even think twice about uh, divulging this information to him.
0: He's just very familiar to her and she's part of the backdrop and he, he gradually wormed his way in in terms of trust and as he said, you know, powerful people talk like I'm not there. And that's what makes him so valuable as a spy. Varus takes advantage of that constantly. And how brutal is it that what gives the game away to Sansa is her own house sigil, a dire wolf decked out on her maiden's cloak? Now Sansa is in the position of the reader interpreting signs. She knows what that wolf means in context. There's no reason for her to wear a cloak like that if all today meant was her getting a new dress. Like the court would be really puzzled by that. It would be sending a social signal that doesn't make sense. As you say, we communicate a great deal through our clothing. In other circumstances, the sign of that wolf would be a source of strength for Sansa. Like imagine if she saw it on Rob's banners coming over the horizon to save her. But within this context of weaponized femininity, what that wolf signals is marriage. The maiden's cloak, standing in for her old family that is now being swept away and replaced. Yeah, what should literally be her comfort, what should be keeping her
1: warm, is what sends a chill down her spine. In this highly binary society with regards to gender, clothing and heraldry are some of the ways women are able to wield power, or in this case have power wielded against them. And the colors of the cloak can't be ignored, the stark white versus the Lannister crimson. In the most basic sense, the purity of the white, the innocence of Sansa, being overwhelmed by the red, standing in for war and the systems of violence she's being initiated into, and the actual physical violence she's been witness and victim to so far as well. And as she is coming into her womanhood,
0: this cloak swap is not unlike her first period, white sheets giving away to Blood Red. Yeah, that's great. That's a a perfect way of thinking about it, connecting it back to her first period that we saw in Clash of Kings. This, this chapter really does feel like the follow-up to that one, in, in a lot of ways. And Sansa tries to run for it, but even if she hadn't been immediately caught, where would she go? What would she do? When Ned was executed, Arya had Yorin on the spot to whisk her away to the Riverlands. Sansa has no one coming for her. The Kingsguard take her to the Sept, and it's worth noting how they react... Marin Trant gives Sansa a look that makes her cringe. He's hit her before, and would be happy to do so again, even without Joffrey giving the order. He's a sadist, and a bully, perverting the ideal of knighthood as so many do. Rather than using his strength to defend the helpless, he uses his strength to hurt the helpless. Osmond Kettleblack, by contrast, tells her to be brave, like the wolf she's supposed to be. And that introduces an interesting theme in this chapter what it means to be, quote, not so bad as the rest of them. That's how Sansa thinks about Tyrion, right after Osmond talks to her. So George is clearly linking the two.
1: And I I raise my eyebrow a little bit at Kettlebeck's kindness, whether it's earnest or whether that's something, you know, Littlefinger instructed. It's like uh, the glasses and they live. It's like once you realize that all of it's a performance, (laughs) it's just hard not to look at everyone's actions and be like, are they doing this truly out of kindness or is there some motivation in there? And I think we'll talk about later, even the small kindnesses Sansa receives in this chapter may be part of greater political
0: machinations as well. It's hard to locate any sincere emotion in this chapter until maybe the end with Sansa and Tyrion. And even then, the sincerity of the feelings don't make them any less complex or easy to handle. And as with Osmond and Tyrion, you could say the, the same thing about Garland Terrell later in the chapter, that he takes the time to comfort and cheer Sansa while the rest of his family just ignores her. But what does it really mean to be not so bad as the rest of them when the end result is the same? Like, Osmond delivers Sansa to the altar against her will, same as Maren Trant. Garland joins his family in framing Sansa along with Tyrion for Joffrey's death. And Tyrion himself goes along with his father's plan for this wedding, despite his visible reluctance. So I, I think part of what George is up to here is challenging our perception of what we might do in their shoes, forcing us to realize that from the perspective of the victim, being not so bad is not the same as doing good. And this is why Jaime is so disillusioned with the Kingsguard. And it's why Tyrion loses all hope that his family will ever reward his efforts. Because there's just... The rewards of not being as bad as the rest of them are so thin at the end of the day.
1: Yeah. And no matter how many I'm built different jokes I've seen online, I'd say most people feel they are victims of their own circumstances. That not much can truly be done to change things. X, Y, and Z people have the power to do whatever they want. And the rest of us just kind of have to go along with it. Um, And it's not just that these systems and hierarchies leave us powerless, but they want us to know we are powerless. They want to stamp out not just hope, but imagination. Imagination is required for transformative
0: justice. Instead, you know, you're kind of stuck with the lesser of Lannister evils. And of course, we also have the greater of Lannister evils showing up in this (laughs) chapter. You know, I had forgotten until this reread of A Storm of Swords, that we really don't see Joffrey at all early in the book. Sansa saw him from afar as he welcomed Marjorie into the city, and until now, that's been it. And that's quite a contrast to the first couple books, in which Joffrey's violent behavior was front and center. George's focus early on in A Storm of Swords, when it came to King's Landing, was on Tywin and the Tyrells, the winners of the Battle of Blackwater come to remake royal politics in their own, sometimes conflicting images. Joffrey has receded. But this is also the book where George kills off the brat, which would be less effective if we had forgotten what he was like. So George reminds us. Joffrey is seen three times in A Storm of Swords. Here, at this wedding, reacting to the Red Wedding, and then presiding over his own wedding, where his in-laws promptly murder him. Perfect structure, he's always at a wedding in this book. George makes us hate Joffrey right away again when he declares that he's Sansa's father today. The fucking nerve of that, after having had her father killed in front of her. Having the king stand in as Sansa's father gives the sense that this is this is all one rotten system. Political power as patriarchy. It also lends a perverse sting in the tale to Joffrey's constant unwanted advances on Sansa. Is he thinking of it as incestuous? And maybe getting off on that a little bit? Sansa defies him, and good for her. Joffrey responds by saying he can make her marry anyone, even Illyn Payne, the man who killed her father. Now don't let the sheer horror of that blind you to the fact that Joffrey is bluffing. Tywin is the mastermind here, and unlike Joffrey, he's not doing this purely out of cruelty. He's doing it for power, to breed a half-Lannister heir to Winterfell, and that won't work if Sansa marries the Executioner instead. If Joffrey really tried to do that, Tywin would stop him, and I think Joffrey knows that. After all, when, Ty- when Tyrion steps in to ask for a moment alone with Sansa, Cersei cows Joffrey to accepting that with no more than a look. The point isn't that Joffrey really has unlimited power, it's that the adults in the room don't curb the power he does have to make Sansa miserable.
1: Yeah, not unlike Cersei, Joffrey is just taking it out on the people he can immiserate. Um, He's like kind of that middle management, petty dictator type who gets yelled at by the higher ups. And the only thing he can do is go to his little fiefdom, which is basically tormenting Sansa Stark, and then using that as an opportunity to uh, show his
0: full power and nastiness. So like I said, this is where Tyrion walks in. And he's in a liminal position here. He has more power than Sansa, but it's table scraps compared to Tywin. His fancy Lannister clothes only call attention to his battle wound, and he just doesn't look comfortable wearing them. Words fail along with the image. Sansa knows the script, but she also knows enough that it doesn't apply. If she calls Tyrion handsome, she thinks, he'll think I'm a fool or a liar. And having been inside Tyrion's head, we know she's right. Even as he wants that praise, that love, part of him believes he's been denied it for good reason, and so he lashes out whenever he gets even a taste of it. Tyrion's words are powerless too, which is a nightmare for him because as he told Jon, his weapon is his mind. He can't think his way out of this. Tyrion apologizes for the horror show Sansa is being put through, saying that I would have come sooner, but, you know, dad would send me to my room. It's deeper than that, of course. As Tyrion says, these are matters of state. It had to be secret, so that the Tyrells wouldn't find out, and accelerate their plans to whisk Sansa away to Highgarden to marry Willis. But that's the point. Matters of state are trumping them as flesh and blood individuals. They matter only to the extent that their last names matter. And those matter only to the extent that they can be tied to land and power. Yeah,
1: just think of where these two were just one book ago. Tyrion was Hand of the King, and Sansa, though every bit a prisoner that she is now, was the future Queen of Westeros.
0: Now, they're just last names to be paired up and nothing more. That that sense of, that, that thrilling sense of being close to the heart of power and maybe being able to interact with it yourself, that has faded away for both of them here. And Tyrion says that he didn't ask for this any more than Sansa did, which is true, but their experiences are entirely different, which is not only because of gender, and not only because of the war, it's how those two things come together. And I I
1: hate to do this, but I'm going to put myself in Tywin Lannister's shoes here. Already exiled, (laughs) already off. Given Tywin's perception of Tyrion, he'd be thinking this is exactly what Tyrion might be asking for, maybe? Maybe. He wanted the rock, but Winterfell is one of the great castles of Westeros. He'd get a great house and wardenship and all the bells and whistles the Lannister ancestral home would have had anyways. And plus, he'd get a young girl. Since Tyrion is into sex workers, surely he'll be down for this. So I'm not saying this to say Tyrion was asking for this, and Tywin is obviously making this match for political reasons, but Tywin probably thinks this is the greatest kindness he's ever
0: done Tyrion, that he should be appreciated for it even. I think you're, you're absolutely right. Like Tywin is, is affronted that Tyrion isn't on board with this and thinks, well, there's just nothing I can do for that kid. He just hates me. But that just shows how distant Tywin is from really what's going on inside Tyrion and that dealing with this would require not just marrying Tyrion off, but I mean, I don't think there's any way to fix their relationship. But if Tywin wanted to try, it would involve directly addressing Taisha and Tywin would not even think to do that. It's not even like he's resisting it. He, it I, don't, I don't think it would even occur to him Like in his final moments when Tyrion has shot Tywin and brings up Tysha, Tywin's like, who? Oh, right. That's what this is about? Like it's surprising to him that this
1: still matters to Tyrion. It's almost like this is his solution for that. Well, now Tyrion's properly married, so we can kind of just forget all that business about his first wedding that, you know, kind of even
0: didn't really happen if you think about it. That tawdry embarrassment. (laughs) Exactly. And Tyrion says here they can still call off the wedding, but only if Sansa marries Lancel instead. Because you know, he's younger, and prettier, and tall. This is a constant theme in Tyrion's story. He allows the way he's been treated as a dwarf to blind him to all other considerations. We saw that when he entered the room. Sansa was begging Joffrey, oh please don't make me wed your... and Tyrion finishes, uncle? Assuming Sansa was horrified at the thought of marrying him, because he's so short and ugly. And to be fair to Tyrion, that is definitely part of it. We see that in Sansa's thoughts. But she wasn't actually talking about him in that moment. She was talking about ill and pain. Tyrion has internalized the ableism he has faced. He literally uses it to finish sentences. So while he thinks that Sansa might be happier with Lancel, she realizes the truth. No matter who she marries today, it won't be by choice. Even if she married Willis... It wouldn't really be about true love, it would be about her claim. And Tyrion can't do anything about that kind of dehumanization. So at first it seems like the whole court has turned out to see Sansa wed against her will. Ah, but then she sees who's missing. The Tyrrells, of course. They lost this match in the Game of Thrones. They were planning on planting Sansa at Highgarden, so to speak. Getting one up on the Lannisters and giving themselves an easy way of making peace with the Starks, if the politics should turn in that direction. But Sansa gave it away to Dantos, who gave it away to Littlefinger, who gave it away to Tywin. So now the Lannisters have struck first. Uh, in regards to my upcoming comment, you absolutely do
1: not, under any circumstances, have to hand it to Littlefinger, but I'm about to hand it to Littlefinger. Uh, he obviously has designs on Sansa for himself, and the Tyrell plot interferes with that. But it's an absolute master stroke on his part to go to Tywin, further ingratiate himself to the Lannister cause, then plot with the Tyrells to create a secret alliance with them, all the while still killing Joffrey and abscotting with
0: Sansa Stark as originally planned. It is very interesting how Littlefinger plays the Tyrells and keeps them on his side to the extent that, you know, where the story currently stands. I, I don't think they have realized that he screwed them over. Like, you know, obviously we don't have Tyrell POVs, but I don't think they know Sansa's in the Vale. So I I think they still don't realize what he did to them here. And that is is very impressive on his part. He knows how to play the Lannisters and the Tyrells off each other uh, very effectively.
1: Yeah, it's one thing to have a master plan, but to actually place that master plan as a cog so it turns along with the Tyrell master plan and the Lannister master plan. It's just incredible synchronicity, and I think he got a bit lucky in the long run, too. But oh, agreed. So far, everything's clicking for
0: him. That's a great point. He, Littlefinger does know how to keep everyone else humming along just long enough. He knows not to betray them to their face unless, like as with Ned, he he knows he has absolute power over them at that point, and he doesn't over the Tyrells. Sansa has been a pawn in the Tyrells' game, and they treat her like one. By not showing up at the wedding, the Tyrells signal their displeasure without overtly defying the Lannisters. As Tywin said, they can't be visibly unhappy because they never publicly asked for Sansa's hand in the first place. I didn't
1: honestly think of it this way before. I honestly kind of read it as the Lannisters explicitly excluding the Tyrells from coming by not inviting them or even honestly, deciding to have the wedding so last minute that they didn't even have like an opportunity to send out invites or allow the Tyrells to actually prepare to attend. Um, I do think on reread you have a, the more correct reading, but I, that was literally how quick like things were moving the first time I read this chapter. That I'm like literally like they like Tywin woke up is like, we're doing the wedding today,
0: and Cersei got into motion, and that just kind of kicked everything off. I could definitely see that being the case. I don't know if they would snub the Tyrells on the official (laughs) wedding invite list if there was such a thing but moving fast enough so the Tyrells can't react and like by the time they find out it's on to the feast I could I could also see that being the case for sure either way though their absence adds to the surreal nightmarish quality of this chapter the people Sansa was relying on to save her from this have vanished like they were never there at this point Sansa disassociates and for good reason It's a physical reaction as much as an emotional one. It's a way to keep from breaking down. And the vivid imagery returns, more clearly ironic now for the first-time reader. The hundred dancing lights that are supposed to represent the divine presence at this wedding are multiplied into a thousand in Sansa's eyes, but only because she's crying. Joffrey pulls away her maiden's cloak and gives her his version of initiation into adulthood, squeezing her breast without her consent doing it where no one can see. All the audience sees is, as George describes it, the kingly flourish. Yeah, that's a good snapshot of how a lot of violence against marginalized genders
1: works in patriarchy. It's invisible or appropriated in a way that just affirms the power structures that already exist.
0: It allows everyone watching to pretend that's not what they're looking (laughs) at. And although we are in a pre-modern era, This feels to me equally relevant to the modern media age. Like I think of in Gone Girl, when there's that bit where Ben Affleck pretends to kiss Rosamund Pike for the cameras. And we can see from behind that he's like, not even making contact with her face. But from the camera's perspective, it looks like they're kissing. They're the perfect happy couple. And so now we arrive at the controversial part of this chapter. Sansa refusing to kneel to kiss Tyrion. I've heard this scene argued from all angles. It's a feminist defiance. It's ableist on her part. If you find it inspiring, you're ableist. If you don't find it inspiring, you're sexist. Here's what I think. As an able-bodied man who is not drawing from any personal perspective, so take this with as many grain of salt as you like. Sansa is being robbed of any control over her status and her body, with her very name being weaponized against not only her, but her family. While Tyrion is not the architect of her doom, he is still a member of House Lannister, which is absorbing Sansa against her will. This is her only method of defiance. And as she thinks, it's absurd to expect her to care about his feelings when no one cares about hers. But I don't think we're supposed to leave it there. Or else why did George write this? When Sansa turned, the little man was gazing up at her, his mouth tight, his face as red as her cloak. Suddenly she was ashamed of her stubbornness. And the point, for me, is not that Sansa's suffering is somehow cancelled out by her doing this to Tyrion. It's that she suddenly experiences empathy when she never expected to. This is also what happened with Sandor during the Blackwater, which George emphasizes by having Sansa compare the two in her thoughts in this scene. Power is a complicated thing, because there are so many kinds of power. They frequently line up, as with Joffrey wielding both political and sexual power over Sansa, but sometimes they don't. As Cersei told Sansa in the last book, when it comes to swords, a queen is only a woman after all. By that same token, while Tyrion is clearly in the advantageous position over Sansa with regards to gender and political power, when it comes to this moment, when it matters how tall you are, the Lannister is only a dwarf after all. I think there is an impulse reading a scene like this to come up with a clean and satisfying moral read of the situation. When the truth might be that there is no justice to be had, and that the only way Sansa has to exert her dignity comes at the cost of Tyrion's. I I
1: honestly couldn't say it any better myself. Uh, This is very much intentionally complicated and messy, and it's that complication and messiness that makes these books generally rewarding to read and reread. Very little else is morally cut and dry in the story, so why should this be? I feel pity for both here. Neither asked for this, and both are unwilling members to this union and are marginalized by Westerosi patriarchy. We can do oppression Olympics and say along the vectors of gender and age and politic, Sansa has lesser station than Tyrion, but I don't think that yields anything meaningful to us, the audience. What is meaningful is Sansa's reaction to this. If she turned to a red-faced Tyrion and was still defiant, that's one thing. But we are watching her learn in real time, understanding what her actions meant to Tyrion. I'm honestly curious if we see some sort of similar moment with Sansa down the line and if she takes a different course of action. And I think this is also um, kind of setting up the end of this chapter, which is a whole other kind of uh, very highly fraught, very kind of what's the right answer to what is actually taking place with the betting ceremony when Sansa and Tyrion are just alone. And there's little else for me to add. Specifically, Emmett, I felt, covered it really well but I think we as thoughtful readers should use caution in saying things like, if you think like this, that means you're ableist or sexist. Uh, literary critique and analysis doesn't really exist for us to make moral conclusions about other readers. This is very intentionally meant to drive you crazy in its complexity, and I think both Tyrion and Sansa are pitiable figures here. Being able to find overlap, or say the intersections, in their oppressions is the most meaningful takeaway for us readers, I think
0: agreed and i think the the emotions are supposed to be clear and relatable what you do with those emotions i think is the part that's really complicated and i think that's that's very realistic and i think recognizes all of these characters as individuals and that you know sansa's main beef really isn't with tyrion but even though it's with joffrey joffrey dying doesn't really fix the situation for her either and even Tywin dying doesn't really fix the situation either. So I think we, yeah, we are supposed to be kind of brought up short as we realize, oh, as obviously bad as this is, maybe I don't know what the solution is. And isn't that interesting? I think we all have these moments in our lives
1: where we just remember being, oh, I was just a little more cruel than I needed to be, or I could have been a little warmer in this moment. And you really don't have a great justification, you know, after the fact of why you were like that. But, you know, if you think, back on that and think, man, that was kind of shitty for me to do, and hopefully kind of do better in the future. I think we're seeing something like that kind of take hold in Sansa right here. Um, Realizing that under these systems, it is kind of a zero-sum game that's
0: going on between her and Tyrion's dignity, Um, sad it is, is to see. And so from there, we move to the small hall for the feast. And here, at last, we find the Tyrells. Maybe it was too humiliating to attend the wedding itself, but they have to be seen. And hey, Why pass up a nice meal? They close ranks around each other, and treat Sansa like she's not even there. It's a brutal expression of in-group logic, and it trickles down through the generations. For the younger cousins, it's like Sansa can't sit at the cool table anymore. But that teenage viciousness curdles into something deeper and colder by the time you get to Olenna. Only Marjorie acknowledges how shitty this is, and then only with a look. It's what makes sense for their team, but it leaves Sansa all alone, as she realizes she was never on their team at all. She still has no family. When you asked for my initial thoughts on this chapter, my first
1: instinct was to compare this to the Gollum two-hander from the middle of the Two Towers film. But Master is our friend. You don't have any friends, (laughs) is basically the vibe of the entire chapter, but with Tyrell or Marjorie subbing in for Master. As you and Jeff discussed in Sansa's first two A Song, or A Storm of Swords chapters, our lack of insight into Marjorie's thoughts make her a very fascinating character. So many of her interactions can be read as earnestly affable, or just as easily politically motivated performance. Is she truly feeling sorrow for Sansa? Or is this some sort of play as well? I'm not anticipating Marjorie and Sansa ever crossing roads, even in the winds of spring, (laughs) but what would it look like if they did?
0: Who knows? You know, Marjorie's one of those characters where I think the show actually improved on what was there, but I think that's also because what's there in the books is deliberate obfuscation. And that does pay off in its own way with my favorite Marjorie moments towards the end of Feast for Crows. When Cersei has had her thrown in jail and is still making polite noises at her. And Marjorie just snaps in the cell and just just calls her a bitch and finally unleashes herself on Cersei. And that is really cathartic because of how much it's been held back. And as you say, even this little moment with Sansa, like it's a sad little look. But who knows what that's for? We'll, Well, I don't, yeah, I don't think we'll ever find out. And it's not like she's getting any support from her new husband. Tyrion only opens his mouth to drink. So much for intimacy. Two hearts beating as one and all that. All of this is pantomime. And worse, Sansa is terrified of the moment in which it's all going to get real, when no one's watching and they're alone. The betting seemed, quote, wonderfully wicked and exciting when Sansa was younger, because everyone was laughing and smiling, and what happened next, eh, that could stay abstract. And George is very cleverly also laying out how bettings work in
1: The Seven Kingdoms, so the reader has some expectations for Admir and Rosalind's wedding and betting at the end of the act.
0: That's a great point, especially Rosalind's tears, which I think might have been a red flag. Except that we already have this example of like Sansa being terrified of her wedding. And we think, oh, maybe Rosalind's being forced into this by her dad. Maybe she's not sure about this. That lines up with the phrase. It's not necessarily that they're going to kill everyone. So then it's surprising when that's exactly what it is. And for Sansa, it's, it's so much, the bedding is so much different when she is here at the center of attention. Which is where, as a kid, she wanted so desperately to be, right? But nothing is as she imagined it. Not only is her husband not handsome, he's not even smiling. Joffrey is, though, as he dances with Marjorie. And how can that be, Sansa thinks? How can a monster dance so beautifully? Why would that be? Why does nothing line up like it should? Why does the surface so often fail to match what's inside? I don't think Sansa is regressing here to her first book self, as as some people have said. I think this is something that works on us even when we should know better or do know better. Yeah, Sansa observing all the dancers.
1: This image is just so, so close to what would be in Sansa's wildest dreams. All these beautiful nobles here to celebrate her wedding at the very seat of power in the Seven Kingdoms. In another life, this very same backdrop is where Sansa's dreams come true. But now, Sansa knows this is all performance, just like everything at the ceremony was a performance,
0: too. Sansa watches Cersei charm everyone. And, you know, it's not like those people honestly think she's an angel. It's that they don't care, because unlike Sansa, they don't have to suffer for it. The Tyrells only turn on Cersei when she starts actively becoming a problem for them in Feast for Crows. Sansa still tries to play her part, asking Tyrion to dance when he fails to, But he can't handle being on display, as he says, We've given them enough amusement, haven't we? He is hypersensitive about his body after the ceremony. So instead, Garland Tyrell steps up. The ultimate knight, muscled like a maiden's fantasy. Even Loras admitted he couldn't match his brother with a sword. Sansa thinks that perhaps duty would compel her to remain at Tyrion's side, but she wants to dance. Not only that, but Garland is a Tyrell and Sansa still doesn't want to believe that they just used and discarded her. Garland is the soul of chivalry. As Sansa says, I see why they call you the Gallant. But actually, as it turns out, that nickname has nothing to do with Garland's behavior. He got it as a kid. Willis called him that because they have an uncle called Garth the Gross, and Garland says he was a plump little boy. Willis began calling his little brother Gallant to prevent worse nicknames, although not before coming up with some himself. It's a reminder that the nicknames Sansa loves from the stories can be used as weapons within the social hierarchy. Remember how she referred to Olena as the Queen of Thorns until Loras had to tell her, yeah, don't say that to Grandma's face? Yeah, it's the power of names. It's a very
1: common theme across A Song of Ice and Fire, perhaps most notably illustrated by the Stark's Dark Sisters, especially Sansa, but especially Arya. With Arya, we see how her name reflects her current station in that hierarchy at any given time. She is Arya Stark of House Winterfell, but then a ragged orphan boy named Aerie, a mouse in Harrenhal, and a squab to the Brotherhood, all until she can finally transcend those names as no one. Sansa too will see her name wax with her power, the bastard Elaine Stone whose only official power is being related to Littlefinger, but whose actual power will come forth when she reclaims her name of Sansa Stark. But the power of names isn't just for these characters. It's for us, the readers, too. Garland the gallant holds sway on us. I'm sure you can hear Emmett's heartbeat rising as we talk more about him. I apologize for nothing. And it's why we think, and I guess kind of now know, thanks to George, that Garland will play a bigger role in the winter winter. It's perhaps why the fandom doesn't put the same stock in, say, the Redwine Twins. No
0: one's expecting much from Sir Horror and Sir Slobber. absolutely no I think you're right this is in part keeping Garland in our minds because George does have plans for him probably with regards to the whole eldritch apocalypse stuff breaking out down in the reach but this scene is also an example of the the genuine warmth between siblings that is so lacking between Tyrion and Cersei like it's not a coincidence that in this chapter she calls him a gargoyle and now we have Garland saying yeah Willis threatened to call me that but really he came up with a nice nickname for me because Willis loves Garland. And Garland loves Willis. They can rib each other, but they always have each other's back. And this is such a sweet, silly little story that Sansa laughs, and for a minute her misery fades. And she's grateful to Garland for, if nothing else, a distraction. He cuts deeper than that, though. He is the only person in the room to acknowledge that Sansa cried her way through her wedding ceremony. Even then, of course, he's being nudged to do so by his wife, Lady Leonette, who demonstrates the gendered solidarity so lacking with the other women of the Tyrell court, not to mention Cersei. Garland tells Sansa that he has seen her gaze worshipfully upon Loras, but that Tyrion will make a better husband. Part of this, of course, is that Loras is gay, and it's funny to watch Garland, like, tiptoe around that without acknowledging it. But judging from what he says at the Purple Wedding about Tyrion's valiant efforts during the Battle of Blackwater, I think this is genuine affection on Garland's part. He's trying to mitigate the damage he sees being done to Sansa by saying, hey, this might not be the worst thing in the world. Yeah, not sure if you listeners can tell at home, but Emmett was heavily fanning himself there all the while talking about Garland Tyrell. It's not my fault he's handsome. It's not my fault George writes him with little anime hearts (laughs) hovering all around him at all times. That's the author, not me. I accept zero responsibility (laughs) for my own opinions. Uh, I do agree with you, dude. I do think
1: (laughs) Garland (laughs) is genuinely being kind here. But like with Marjorie before, you can see how this authenticity can still serve Tyrell ends. Several of the Tyrells remain ingratiated to Lady Sansa even after this whole fiasco, which can be useful to them,
0: abstractly or concretely, as they plan Joffrey's death. And yet, as with Osmund Kettleblack earlier, that goodwill fades when you put it into context in the center of power. The minute Sansa's wedding starts to resemble the fairy tales of her dreams, Joffrey shows back up to ruin everything all over again. It's not a fairy tale without the monster. No, it's not, and we got a good one here. Joffrey is the flip side of the coin. Garland gave Sansa sweet words. Joffrey gives her brutal ones. Garland asked her politely to dance. Joffrey kisses Sansa without her consent. Garland said that Tyrion may prove to be a better husband than Sansa imagines. Joffrey says that it doesn't matter if Sansa winds up hating Tyrion, because Tyrion will bring her to Joffrey's bed instead. It doesn't matter that Joffrey himself will be married to Marjorie. The king can do as he likes with women, Joffrey says. And here's the thing: he is not making that idea up out of thin air. He cites precedent, not only Robert, but also Egon the Fourth. You remember Egon the Fourth, the guy who kick-started the Blackfyre rebellions out of spite. It's fascinating that Joffrey looks to Egon the Unworthy as his model king. It's a window onto how things would have gone if Joffrey had lived past his wedding day. And he is one hundred percent right. That not only did Aegon have sex with any woman he wanted to, but that her being married to someone else did not stop him. The problem goes deeper than Joffrey himself. There's that that great line that conservatism consists of exactly one proposition, to wit. There must be in-groups whom the law protects but does not bind, alongside out-groups whom the law binds but does not protect. There is nothing more or else to it, and there never has been, in any place or time. The king can do no wrong. In practice, this immunity was always extended to the king's friends, however fungible a group they might have been. Another way to look at this is that the king is a faction rather than an individual. And we see that play out here. Marriage binds women, but does not protect them, especially not from powerful men like Joffrey. And Joffrey makes just such a stark contrast
1: to Rob in this case. In Catelyn 2, we see Rob literally beating himself over, over betraying the phrase for Jane, But he felt his honor demanded he wed Jane. Meanwhile, Joffrey is like, I'm the king. Every woman is mine for the taking, if I want it. There's absolutely no introspection or any thought or consideration for anything other than
0: I have power and I can use it. And even when the Tyrells finally do rid Sansa and everyone else of Joffrey, it's only to frame her for it. And she falls into Littlefinger's clutches instead, which is... Not as violent a place to be, but not exactly a healthier place to be. There is no justice here. There is no external source of a happy ending. Whatever happiness Sansa can find is hard won. Although you could say it's more meaningful for being hers and hers alone. Yeah, especially if she does end up being that lone wolf
1: surviving and ruling as queen in the north at the end of all things like the show had us believe. Um, Because she does end up isolated from her siblings in that term and from her living family at that point. Um, So it will feel like it was her victory in the end. And these like bouts of loneliness and having to do everything basically without help and with the closest people to her like Littlefinger actively trying to use her in very nefarious ways, I think is going to make the end of her character journey seem really rewarding in the long run, I believe.
0: It's that great, bittersweet ending of, of getting what you want, but not how you wanted it. Mm-hmm. And have, being a queen as she wanted at the very beginning of the story, but everything that would give that real lasting happiness has been taken away from her in the meantime. So that's a, I think that's, yeah, the more I think about it, the more I think that is a perfect ending for her. And so Joffrey starts up the call for the betting, And this is a great example of how differently this chapter would play out through Tyrion's eyes. For him, this just continues the endless conga line of humiliation he has been suffering at his family's hands. This is supposed to be his wedding, yet he has no control over it. And when Joffrey goes so far as to order Tyrion to fuck Sansa, Tyrion explodes. As we'll be hinted at later, Tyrion can't keep the memory of Taisha at bay. That's really the problem here. Tywin ordered Tyrion to rape Taisha, so Joffrey, essentially ordering Tyrion to do the same... Is the last straw.
1: And Tyrion at the time was age 13, and by being forced to commit sexual acts with Taisha, he himself is a rape victim too, and made to be an active participant in it. So you can totally understand why this would be his breaking point.
0: Absolutely. And so Tyrion threatens to castrate Joffrey, cutting right to the heart of the political slash sexual power dynamic this chapter has been exploring. If you think you can control my body, I will mutilate yours. I will take away your ability to father children. Which has both personal and political ramifications, because Joffrey is the king. Fathering a kid is kind of the whole deal. And Tyrion himself has already been mutilated fighting Joffrey's wars, the
1: same ones Joffrey ran away from. In his eyes, Tyrion remains a puppet, a folly dancing to the tune of his father and his sister and her vicious idiot son of a king. I think something he sees kind of externalized when in the purple wedding, when he sees the folly with the two uh, dwarf uh, Penny and Groot, uh, Groot rather, <laughs> uh, fighting on their pigs and their sows. So Sansa is rightfully the focal point and point of view here, but I think it's important to remember a lot of the same institutional oppressions working on women also inflict themselves on men, especially men who buck able-bodied masculine ideals. Tyrion is being confronted with all his traumas all over again, as he is subject to the
0: same hierarchies that caused those traumas in the first place. It's always the question in a situation like this of, wait, who in this room is actually happy? Who in this room is actually satisfied with how this is playing out? Oh, is it only Joffrey? (laughs) Well, that's kind of a problem. Like, Tyrion isn't happy, and I really don't think Tywin actually is either. And Cersei definitely isn't. So who is this serving, this setup, other than Joffrey? It seems like nobody. Cersei only sees this as an opportunity to get a leg up on her hated brother. We've already seen the toxic Lannister family dynamic play out at the small council session in Tyrion's last chapter, but the difference is that no one else was in the room when that went down. Tyrion's cardinal sin here isn't threatening Joffrey. It's doing so in public, making them all look bad when Tywin is trying so hard to make them look good. So Tywin has to paper it over with neutral euphemistic language. Oh, we can dispense with the betting. Surely you did not mean to threaten the king's royal person. He's trying to put a lid on this Pandora's box of emotions. And yeah, there's something monstrously unfair about that, as Tyrion no doubt feels. Why do Joffrey's antics get a pass? Why is Tyrion the party pooper only when he strikes back? That's why Tyrion looks so angry. But it's also because he's being reminded that Tywin rules not only his body, but his mind. Tywin
1: lives rent-free in Tyrion's head. We literally see this in A Dance with Dragons, with Tyrion repeating, where do sex workers go, and constantly hearing the thrum of that damn crossbow. Gods, do I have to put myself in Tywin's shoes yet again? (laughs) He hates Tywin. We hates him, I promise. But he's putting most of this on Tyrion because he needs to preserve this performance. But I have to think he's also trying to hedge against Joffrey's baser instincts. The young king has had no qualms about calling for acts of abuse or harm in public, and even with Tywin around, there might be some knight or guard around who's eager to do Joffrey's bidding.
0: Tyrion is forced to pretend he was joking. Leaning into the image of Dorf as Courtchester he hates so much. Basically, he's playing Mushroom here. I only joked because my dick is so small. The move works, and it also doesn't. Osmond Kettleblack laughs but neither Joffrey nor Tywin do. Our POV though, as you say, isn't Tyrion, but Sansa. And from Sansa's POV, she is being treated like a bone fought over by a pack of dogs. Joffrey grabs Sansa's arm as he tells Tyrion he'll force him to sleep with her. It's as if Joffrey is using Tyrion's dick as a substitute for his own, demonstrating his power even if he's not the one forcing himself upon her. After Tyrion threatens Joffrey, the latter accidentally rips Sansa's sleeve. But as she thinks, no one notices. All that fuss over the dress, but it's a prop. And as far as they're concerned, so is she.
1: Sansa really couldn't be any more absent from her own wedding if she wasn't even there. Her Mm -hmm. name is on the invites, and hopefully nine months from now there is a Stark-born Lannister, but otherwise, the entirety of her being is absent to basically everyone in attendance, except for those brief moments with Garland Tyrell.
0: And then after all that, Tyrion decides to go ahead with the betting anyway, demonstrating that this is purely about pride to him. He ironically puts it in terms of children's games. Come we, have to, come, we have to go play. Come into my castle, my wife. Revealing what those games were really all about. Preparing kids for, well, this moment. When all the observing eyes of the court fade away, and we're left alone with two people trying to understand what the hell they do now. The bitter irony is that even alone with each other, Sansa and Tyrion, neither of them can imagine intimacy for a whole host of reasons, and so fall right back on signs and symbols, piling up one cliche after another to avoid facing the truth. Speaking of signs and symbols, I want to highlight the setting for the betting
1: here real quick, the Tower of the Hand. In the simplest sense, it's Tywin's home field advantage. It's his game board that Tyrion and Sansa are being moved upon. But the tower also holds significance to our newlyweds as well. For Tyrion, the Tower of the Hand was him at the height of his power, the place where he found something else to, do, to be good at besides joking and poking, and in that time ever so briefly seemed to have his father's confidence. But all that crumbled in Tyrion 1, when his father took the lesser history of Tyrion's rule as acting hand, the one where Tyrion is harsh to his own kin while protecting sex workers. And now his father, the core to his trauma, has taken the Tower and the Handship away from him. While the Tower of the Hand symbolized Tyrion's height of power, it initially was the height of Sansa's dreams, the stepping stone to queendom, and the fantasy life she dreamt of. The last place she would feel familial love and be part of the pack was in the Tower of the Hand, back when Ned and Arya and Septa Mordain and the rest still lingered.
0: That's a great point. That's something they have in common, is this... This kind of re-traumatization happening for both of them as they're, they're, they're forced into this territory that they thought was theirs and is no longer. And Tyrion, as I said, is clearly in the more powerful position here with regards to gender and age and political status. But that doesn't necessarily provide him with a roadmap for how to handle this. He is clearly making it up as he goes. Yeah, when Taisha
1: being his foundational sexual experience, you can understand why he's just as lost as Sansa
0: here almost. And that's why he keeps getting drunk, to mask the disgust and fear with which he approaches this situation. And now Tyrion explicitly brings up Taisha. Clearly he's been thinking about this all along. It couldn't be more different. During that wedding, they had only a drunken Septon and some pigs as witnesses, but it was still so much better because they both wanted to be there. They were in love. And all the finery of this ceremony can't cover up the emotional emptiness. Tysha and Tyrion fell into bed laughing, he says, just as Sansa thought about how in her fantasy wedding, everyone was smiling. They both kind of wanted the same thing. And for both of them, this is a mockery of how it was supposed to go. Even as Tyrion exposes his vulnerabilities, Sansa sticks to the script— saying that she had forgotten Tyrion was married before, because admitting she never knew it would seem impolite. Oh, she's unprepared. If I forgot about it, then it's all my fault. And part of what Sansa has been taught as a noble lady is to absorb all the shortcomings in the room so the men don't have to. Tyrion hates this script. At first, he mocks it, referring to Taisha as a lady of House Silverfist. Oh, their arms are coins on a bloody sheet. The reason Sansa hasn't heard of Tyrion's marriage to Taisha is because it doesn't fit the script. It was a genuine romance, which means it had no place in a world where the business of wedding and bedding is all tied up in the business of buying and selling. Tywin couldn't bear Tyrion making his own life choices that stood outside the master plan to regain the glory of House Lannister. So he lied to his son that his relationship with Taisha was commerce, not romance. Ironically, it's this marriage with Sansa that is much more about coins on a bloody sheet. There's no intimacy to be had. Tyrion wants that intimacy so badly, and he resents Sansa for hiding behind her courtesies, as we'll see more of later in the book. But as she says, Courtesy is a lady's armor. It's one of many lessons Sansa learned that took a poisonous twist when her life fell apart. As Septa Mordain taught it, The idea of courtesy being a lady's armor meant that Sansa could use it to avoid awkward social interactions. Now it's more literal, in that sticking to the script is how Sansa tries to avoid being physically abused. It's almost literally her armor. And this means that she can never act like herself. It's another example of how this chapter would have played out very differently through Tyrion's eyes. For him, Sansa sticking to the script, even after everyone else has left the room, feels inexplicable as anything other than a personal rejection. Down to the point that he
1: has to tell her to call him by his name, Tyrion, and not my lord. Even wedded, she is unable to interact with him outside of the confines of those courtesies, to the point
0: Tyrion has to basically order her to. And for her, it's a survival mechanism. Sansa sees both hunger and rage in Tyrion's eyes, And she can't decide which is more frightening. I think, you know, they're really most frightening put together. Tyrion's desire for her is inextricable from his memories of Taisha. And those memories are inextricable from his rage at his father for what he did to Taisha.
1: I love your choice of words there. Sansa sees both hunger and rage. It makes me think to the King's Landing bread riots and what Sansa experienced there. The look of those who attacked her was surely one of hunger and rage albeit maybe a different type of hunger. It's not just Tyrion reliving his own sexual traumas, but Sansa too. Even the disrobing aspect makes me think of Joffrey having her undressed in
0: front of the court. Yep, that's a great comparison. Joffrey pricks all these wounds, opens up all these old wounds, rips off the scabs. And just as Littlefinger looks at Sansa and sees teenage Catelyn reborn, Tyrion looks at Sansa and sees Tysha restored to him. His own desire is frightening to him, because it's something out of his control. And as we see with Shay, Tyrion desperately needs to be in control of his sex life, because otherwise, it means his father is. And as Tyrion says, Tywin has commanded him to consummate this marriage. In order for that to feel like anything but rape to Tyrion, he has to establish some pretense of intimacy, some reason she shouldn't fear him. So he's an open wound here, desperately listing off all his best features. I'm loyal, I'm generous, I'm not a coward. All of that is true. He's no Joffrey, as he said. But what did all of that serve Tysha? None of that was true when it counted. Not for her. More to the point, none of this really counts for Sansa, because this isn't like a first date where she's deciding if she likes Tyrion or not. It's not even an arranged marriage between equals. It's a cage to be locked inside. Sansa can't trust Tyrion. And so even as she literally undresses, that metaphorical armor stays on. Tyrion feels insulted by that because he's bearing his soul, saying that his cleverness ought to count for something. He has, he has kindness in me somewhere. I know, it's, it's deep down. If I look far enough, I'll find it. He's a nice guy. He swears. <laughs> I mean, I'd, I'd love to discredit
1: Tyrion here for his incel-like pleas, but it does suck for him too. While Sansa was essentially absent from the wedding, Tyrion was the car crash that no one could turn their heads from. And as Sansa notes, pity is the death of desire. Even as Tyrion spills his heart about not being so bad, it doesn't do anything to actually impassion her or make her more willing in the moment.
0: It doesn't matter that what Tyrion's saying is true. It doesn't erase everything that lies between them. What can Sansa's say to any of this. And her silence confirms the irrelevance of it. Tyrion knows that. And so she undresses, get in the bed, he reaches in to touch her, and then he says no. And it reminds me of Danny and Drogo on their wedding night, but it has kind of the, the opposite outcome in that Tyrion refuses to go any further. And it's, it's an ambiguous moment, because even as he's pulling back, she tries to push forward she thinks to herself give it a shot try to find the beauty in him Septimordain said all men are beautiful look for it it's got to be there and she doesn't see it this is like the opposite of romantic transcendence like that you know the moment in shrek oh but you are beautiful like this is the opposite of that
1: yeah i feel like it's very deliberate when george has sansa look at Tyrion at the foot of her bed and him and His naked glory and, you know, seeing his member and all that stuff like she is actually trying to appraise him as something as someone to connect with, whether it's romantically or sexually or on whatever level. And it is hard to look favorably on Tyrion here, even as he stops short, which thank God. Maybe it's just our modern 20, you know, 2022 brains, but to the point of disrobing and touching her, it should make us feel uncomfortable, on the verge of violation if that line hasn't already been crossed. Maybe him going 99.99% of the way and pulling back makes Tyrion's defiance in the moment against his father seem that much more profound, but from Sansa's point of view,
0: none of that matters, and she was just moments away from essentially being raped. And it could happen again at any time. This is, again, the, what makes such a difference between Sansa and Tyrion's POV. Is that, like, from his POV, that was the big moment. And this is a big deal. And now everything has changed because I didn't do that. And for Sansa, like, okay, didn't happen tonight. Let's check back in tomorrow. That's the situation she's in. And she wonders what she has done for the gods to punish her like this. But the truth is that this has nothing to do with her actions any more than it has anything to do with Tyrion's personality traits that he's listing off like this is a job interview. They're being forced into this, and even Tyrion's attempts to act on his individual will don't really come to anything. As Sansa says, if this is going to be about their choices rather than their duty, if that's what their marriage is going to be about, then she chooses to not have him touch her at all. It's a moment of immense courage for her. Sticking up for herself after having been taught that speaking the truth will lead to pain. And under better circumstances, imagine the political
1: savvy of Tyrion and Sansa working in tandem, especially at the end Game of Thrones, which we might talk about a little bit later. But here they are divided against themselves, even
0: in the quote-unquote union of marriage. And even after pulling himself back from touching her, Tyrion is still hurt by the rejection. Because of course it's not just her, it's the context of a whole lifetime of this. And that's why he makes a fist as the chapter ends. It's this feeling of rejection and alienation that leads Tyrion to violence. Not in his bed, but his father's. Because the world rejects me, Tyrion says, that's why the gods made sex workers. And when Shay rejects him too, that's when the man breaks. So we're now going to shift over into a foreshadowing and groundwork. Definitely one stood out to me as I was rereading this chapter where Sansa is dancing with various people during the feast and Tommen pops in to like, you know, stand on her shoes while he dances, tiny plump Tommen. And he says, I want to get married too. And all I can think is, yeah, don't worry, kid. You will. (laughs) Yeah.
1: To Natalie Dormer, no less. Which yeah, works out this out for a is some-
0: while.
1: <laughs> ah, for a little while, I will say, um, but that is something I realized while watching the throne show. I've kind of been trying to catch up with where we are in the books, with where the show was, and I did kind of just like. Pick out this time that every time Olena or Marjorie talk, or whenever like Littlefinger or Tywin talk about Marjorie, they keep saying she wants to be queen, not she wants to marry Joffrey. It's just very uh-huh. much that it's the t- just like we we're talking about Sansa doesn't matter; it's just the title that you know everyone is fighting over. It's not Joffrey that the Tyrells want; it's just the crown, um, and who is actually wearing that crown is almost irrelevant. In fact, they prove that it's not irrelevant,
0: rather, but they can just make it who they want it to be just to make things easier on themselves. Everyone takes one step over and the ceremony can continue. Like that's how the Tyrells treat this. And it's honestly how Tywin seems to treat it as well. Like we don't exactly see him mourning for Joffrey after the purple (laughs) wedding goes down. All right. So now moving into our theory and discussion portion of the episode. So a big drama over Sansa and Tyrion getting married in this chapter. They stay together for the next handful of chapters in King's Landing and then we get the Purple Wedding, in which Sansa is whisked away by Dantos and then Littlefinger off to the Vale. Tyrion is put on trial for Joffrey's murder, ends up killing Tywin and Shay, running for it to Essos. And by the time you get through Feast and Dance, both these characters are so distant from this point. Both literally and geographically, but also like it's not, you know, they they've moved on to other characters, other concerns. So coming back to this, you kind of have the question, like, how is this going to pay off. So what what do you think? How does this marriage, how does this relationship, how does this factor into the rest of the story?
1: Yeah, this one's honestly tricky for me because I think there's a non-zero chance this might not matter at all, Mm -hmm. which is something I usually don't say about George juggling his balls. Um, But I do have a few ideas how it might come back around, though. I think the simplest way the marriage will matter or have relevance may be in annulling some other marriage, possibly to Harry the heir or anyone else, or once Sansa Stark is revealed to the world again, her marriage to Tyrion might be something that has to be set aside or will be used as a pretext to prevent some kind of other marriage. Littlefinger is still the one pulling the strings, and he strikes me as someone who is going to use the marriage in a way advantageous to Sansa and vis-a-vis him in the long run. But just thinking a bit more abstractly, if Endgame of Thrones has Sansa and Tyrion both surviving, there could be political benefits to both honoring their marriages, and in doing so tie House Stark and Lannister together, healing the rift that really starts this whole drama off. A Game of Thrones starts with Sansa being betrothed to a Lannister in all but name, for it to possibly end with them honoring their vows may be a way to thematically bring that home? I do want to emphasize that this is very abstract thinking, because even if both survive, I imagine Sansa's in Winterfell and Tyrion somewhere in the south, be it King's Landing or Casterly Rock, so I'm not entirely sure how this would work. What about you? What do you think?
0: Yeah, it's it's tough because not only have they moved on to other settings, but they don't really think about each other much. Like If you look at Tyrion's POV in Dance or Sansa's chapters in Feast, they... It's not that they don't think about the past, it's that they think about different characters. Like, you know, Tyrion is thinking about Tywin and Shay. Sansa is thinking about Sandor, of course, and also about her family. And it it just seems to have been kind of a, a blip for both of them, in the same way that, like, when we meet Brienne, she's all about Renly. But then if you look at Brienne's POV chapters in Feast, she only thinks about Renly when Gendry pops up and looks exactly like him because otherwise she's spending some of her time thinking about Jaime because that's the kind of more interesting fleshed out character she has moved on to and part of me feels like that's also happening with Sansa and Tyrion that they're this is kind of a a holding pattern they've moved on to into the arenas where they really belong as characters but I, I do think There could be some kind of bittersweet reunion here, not lingered upon. It's not like an important relationship. Like I think Sansa and Arya have to have a couple of really good, strong scenes with each other to cap that off. Sansa and Tyrion, not so much, but there could be something bittersweet in terms of, and they capture this in the show, just in terms of how far they've both come and how they don't, it's not even that they hate each other or like each other now. It's like, I don't even recognize the person I was when they told me to marry you. And Tyrion's like, yeah, same here. So I think that where they just, they kind of measure the distance between them, literally and otherwise, I think that could that could put a nice note on it. Although I do like the idea of them being one of those like old school Catholic separate but can't get divorced <laughs> couples who don't live together anymore, but it's still technically on the books. The Faith of the Seven, according to them, were married. That is also funny.
1: Yeah, no, I like uh, what you're proposing there, that like all the enmity between the two has been basically cooled down because this entire story has been a lot of very heightened emotions regarding the Starks and Lannisters, the way Ned thinks about the Lannisters, the way Jamie feels about Ned, the way everyone feels about Joffrey. It's just th- th- they're impassioned against each other, you know, so hard. So for the end of them to just be like, yeah, we're cool together now, would kind of be kind of a fun way to bring that home as well.
0: Agreed, agreed. And yeah, it's not not my favorite plot point in Storm of Swords. It serves its function, I think, structurally in terms of what has to happen to them going forward. But it's, it's almost because of that. There's not, a, there's not a dramatic thread left dangling. So I think whatever George decides to do with this relationship, if anything, I think can, can stain on its own emotional terms. I mean, kind of like a minor note in the symphony of like, you know, the big deal stuff like the Starks reuniting with each other or the Lannisters reuniting with each other. This one could be a smaller one. And I think, I think that's perfectly fine. So I think that is going to wrap us up for our big return episode on the Not a Cast podcast. Thank you so much, folks, for listening. I hope you had as good a time as we did. As always, you can rate and review us on uh, on SoundCloud, on Podbean, Spotify. Apple Podcasts, Google Play, wherever you listen to us. You can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F, where I'm going to be doing uh, monthly episodes on Star Wars and Lord of the Rings, picking up on where I've been picking up on where I left off with both of those stories that I was doing uh, while we were on hiatus from A Song of Ice and Fire. So in September, I'm going to be kicking off The Pyre of Denethor, Book 5, Chapter 7 of The Lord of the Rings, and I'm also going to be getting into Revenge of the Sith, since I just wrapped up Attack of the Clones, moving on to Revenge of the Sith in Star Wars. So I'm going to be doing monthly episodes on both those stories for our $5 and above patrons, so you can check that out at patreon.com slash A-S-O-I-A-F. You can follow us on Twitter at ASOIAF or shoot us an email at notacastASOIAF at gmail.com. And you can find me at Port Quentin on Twitter. But Manu, more importantly, where can we find you? Yeah, I've been Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. I
1: promise to only do the full spiel this one time, but just in case you don't know all my other projects, I am currently covering Metal Gear Solid over at Podcast Sans Frontiers. We're actually winding down that podcast. We've approached the last Metal Gear Solid game, Metal Gear Solid B, um, and we're currently in our about 10 to 12 episode coverage of that. So if you want to join us for that, feel free. And then maybe more interesting to uh, your listeners is I have my Lord of the Rings podcast, my brother, my captain, my podcast. Where we are currently in the midst of the Two Towers, though we are going to pause that so we can dive into the Rings of Power series that's debuting on Amazon, and like I mentioned up top, we just went live with the Patreon, um, and access to the Patreon will get you Discord, early episodes, bonus episodes, yada yada, um, pretty much assume kind of the same structure that Not a Cast has,
0: but on the Lord of the Rings side of things. Yeah, it's going to be wild to watch Rings of Power. That's starting up soon. And speaking of television, also starting up soon, of course, is House of the Dragon on HBO. So the next time you hear from us is going to be covering the pilot episode of House of the Dragon, which the that's the episode is going to be released Sunday night on the 21st. We'll be recording our episode about it on Monday the 22nd, and then we'll be out for folks on Tuesday the 23rd. And then the next week after that, we're going to come back to A Song of Ice and Fire. We're going to be coming back to A Storm of Swords Aria 5, in which Arya and her merry band of guerrilla revolutionaries reach Stony Sept, where both the worst of times and best of times await them. So that's that's going to be in a, in a couple weeks' time. You know, will have House of the Dragon in between. So thank you again for listening. I, uh, I'm so happy to be back with Manu and back on the Nauticast podcast. Thank you so much for being with us. And we will see you in a couple weeks for A Storm of Swords, Arya 5.